From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Since this pandemic turned our world upside down, many have adapted quickly to new technologies and digital solutions. And a year later, the biggest question I'm getting is, what's actually going to stick around after the crisis has ended? To talk about the future of innovation and digital health, I wanted to bring on an organization who'd been investing in tech-enabled care for long, long before the pandemic. This week, I've brought the president and CEO of Oxner Health, Warner Thomas. Hey, Warner. Welcome to Radio Advisory. Hey, it's great to be with you. Before we ask any questions about your organization, I have to ask... How the heck do you actually pronounce the organization you work for? Ochsner Health. Ochsner Health. Yes. I have heard it pronounced about a million different ways in my time at advisory board, and I'm sure you get that all the time. Yeah, so some people pronounce it with more of an X. Some people pronounce it with more of an O-C-H, which is how it's spelt. Um, but both are certainly fine. And, and to make uh, it difficult for me, it sounds like the correct answer is actually a bit of both an X and an SH sound. Exactly. It's kind of a mix. <laughs> the rest of the world, really, in the last year, had to adapt to virtual care. And if I'm honest, that was largely in response to the COVID-19 crisis. But your organization is different, right? Oxner was investing in digital solutions long before the pandemic. When would you say that digital health journey actually began? So it's interesting. It's probably been going on for more than two decades. We actually built our own EMR back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, called the Oxner Clinical Workstation. It was built internally. We used it in the clinic. And it was you know, pretty effective, quite frankly. We had major adoption of that electronic medical record right after Katrina because mm-hmm. we had to use electronic medical records, obviously, in that environment. Well, then take me through a little bit of the timeline. If that was the initial spark 20 years ago, what have been some of the major milestones in digital transformation across the last two decades? Sure. So it was interesting. After Hurricane Katrina, we lost a lot of our medical record staff. And so The adoption of our electronic medical record was exponential right after Katrina. We moved very quickly to that Oxnard Clinical Workstation. And then as we went into the late 2008 or 9 into 2010, we realized, you know, we were not a great software company and we needed to move to a new system. And that's when we chose to create a partnership with Epic. Mm -hmm. And we converted to Epic in 2012. Yeah. And then since then, we've, you know, continued to advance our Epic platform have built a lot of digital capabilities around the Epic platform, have obviously stood up telemedicine in a much bigger way, you know, four or five years ago. So it's been certainly an evolution over those two decades. And like I said, this is very different than the typical health system. What was the initial spark? What early signs were you and your team tracking that said, you know, the future of healthcare is digital? You know, I think our physicians have always been leaders and innovators and we're always challenging us to come up with better ways and to work together to come up with better ways to take care of patients. And we knew the access to information was critical. It really has always been spawned by our physician leaders and Hmm. their willingness and wanting to find a better way to take care of patients. Is there a personal spin here though, right? 
Have you been personally an advocate for this kind of transformation? And, and where does that come from? I absolutely have been. And I think one of the things I've always tried to look at is other industries and really comparing healthcare to other industries. I remember talking, you know, more than a decade ago with folks about, you know, it's amazing that we can book an airline ticket online. We can, we don't have to go to the counter anymore to check our bags and, you know, to get our tickets that all of that is done electronically. And, and that has obviously evolved in the last decade, but it was amazing how healthcare was so far behind banking and airlines and other areas. So, I've, I've constantly tried to bring those other thinkings about other industries to healthcare and to our team. Oh, yeah. I, I will admit to you that I remember the very first year that I joined Advisory Board. This was 2014. We did a research study, and there was a case study in that research from Oxner about the OBAR, which was modeled, inspired off of Apple's Genius Bar. So exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. You know, looking at other instances and, you know, the OBAR was, was, you know, really created by one of our physicians, Rich Milani, our clinical transformation officer, who knew that we were going to have, you know, many medical applications. There was going to be apps that people wanted to use for different types of issues to take care of their health. And the question is like, which one do you choose? Mm -hmm. So they had gone through at that point in time, they had analyzed the apps and we created the OBAR where you could actually go to the OBAR. We'd help you get the app installed, help you figure out how to use it. And it was a, a continued evolution of how we connected with our patients digitally. And again, that was seven years ago, which speaks to how much, at least that's when we did the case study on it, it could be even even further back from then. Uh, so that speaks to the long, the long history here. I do want to take a moment and, and get some definitions straight because the virtual care space, the digital care space is huge. And if I think about telehealth, remote patient monitoring, kind of asynchronous connection, those all represent absolutely huge pieces of care delivery. How have the different types of digital solutions been prioritized as your strategy has evolved? Yeah, so I think we have evolved that over the the past, you know, several years. You know, first of all, it was you know, using our Oxner Clinical Workstation and then Epic to really digitize our clinical data. How do we get it in a digital format? And, you know, to me, digitizing our clinical information is about probably 10%, maybe 15% of the value. The real value is how do we use that data to take better care of people? And I think that's mm -hmm. been an evolution over the past several years. So you have that component. You have virtual care, which is really telemedicine and how we connect with people in a virtual fashion. And then I think you are moving to more monitoring, like you said, remote patient monitoring, telestroke, which is, you know, another, you know, idea of virtual care. And we, we really have strategies along all of these lines about how we want to connect with our patients, how we want to do things differently and better. Hmm. This is all a lot. But I have to think that there was some prerequisites that needed to be put in place in order to succeed here. Maybe not from two decades ago, but when you think about the kind of people, the stakeholders, the technology, what things did you need to have in place first to make these massive investments? I think the first thing is always about leadership. You know, we've made a big investment in leadership, you know, going back to when I joined Auctioner in, in 98 and, you know, we really create a very defined way about how we develop leaders, how we review leaders, how we orient them and and train them, quite frankly. And that leadership has been key in our digital transformation. Post our conversion to Epic, 
and getting all of our organization on the Epic platform, you know, it really was then how do we use this information in a different way? How do we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to take better care of people and to analyze our data very differently? How do we stand up and work on virtual care? It's more than a decade since we started Telestroke and built the largest telemedicine program across the entire Gulf South region. But it's always been about people and leaders. Our our stroke telemedicine program was started by a guy named Ken Gaines, who at that hmm. point was the chair of neurology. It was his idea. He came to us and said, look, this is something we should be doing. How do we you know, grow and develop this? So it's always been tied to key leaders in our organization who brought forth ideas, not just one person or one group that needed to own the strategy. And that's more than just luck, right? You've mentioned two, and there are there are probably several other key leaders that have helped shepherd this innovation along and come up with new ideas. But again, it's not just luck that would make that happen. There's got to be, you know, a culture of innovation or, or or something like that. How do you how do you allow leaders to come forth with these kinds of ideas and, and embrace them? So I would say number one, we have a very defined strategic planning process that we run by regent that we run by key service line. And we listen in those sessions for new ideas, for new ways to use technology. So our connected mom technology, which allows us to connect with moms that are you know, around their prenatal visits and, hmm. and how they can essentially be connected to us digitally, which has allowed us actually reduce the number of prenatal visits because some of them become done in a digital fashion. That came from our OB department. Hmm. And it was through their strategic planning. We said, that's an interesting idea. You know, get with our innovation auctioner team, get with our CIO, you know, Laura Wilt and see what where, they can, where you can go with that, see what you can create. And so it's about saying yes. It's about allowing people to experiment. It's about betting on people with their ideas. Uh, and I think that process and, and also making it okay if it doesn't work. You know, we've had several yeah. things that have wor- have not worked and we've moved on from them. But you have to be willing to bet on your people, you know, listen to their ideas and let them make them a reality. And that is something everybody else looks at and wants to do the same thing. And you mentioned Innovation Oxner, which is the innovation lab founded by the health system from just, I think, a couple of years ago. Correct. Is that really the thing that helps go from idea to actual tested and then implemented practice at the system? It is. It's one of the ways. We do give certain challenges and certain problems to our innovation auctioner group to drive and to work on. But I would say that innovation happens every day just in our in our IT department, in our clinical service lines, as they bring you know ideas forward to our data analytics group, which is part of our IT division. We don't move everything to innovation auctioner. We put big problems there that we ask them to solve, and they're solving and working on our remote monitoring right now. They created the OBAR. They mm-hmm. created our digital medicine programs. Really, innovation is happening in a lot of different areas of our organization, not just one area. Yeah. And given that there's so much innovation, if I think about the virtual digital space alone, how do you actually create a process that allows you to prioritize and say, these are the things that we want to invest in now, knowing that so many of your people are coming up with great ideas? And that's always a challenge, right? There's always more good ideas than you have time and resource to put into them. So we do look at a prioritization process of, what's going to help our patients the most, 
what is going to allow us to provide, you know, safer, higher quality healthcare. We look a lot at connectivity and ease of use. What's going to make it easier for our patients to use, you know, auctioner and to have access to our facilities. So we really look at a process of prioritizing based on these components of safety, connectivity, quality, and, and also are there a, ways that we can leapfrog and just, you know, quantum leaps in how we advance care in, in many of our areas. One example of that I would give you is in our, in our monitoring of patients for deterioration. And, you know, we've been able to reduce mm. codes on our med surge units by 40% because we wow. monitor the data and we can actually predict codes before they happen. And we deploy a quote unquote code team or a diagnosis team to look at a patient before they deteriorate because we're able to look at their data and predict that. So that's one way of, of how we use it. And frankly, we just, just better care. It's safer care for our patients. Absolutely. Given your long history of innovation, I have to believe that there are losses along with the wins. And that's where I think a lot of folks listening can actually learn the most is from the mistakes, the barriers you ran into, and so on. Are there kind of problems that that you or your team have run into that you'd like to help others avoid as they pursue their own digital transformation? Yeah, I think how you organize yourself is important. You know, we set up Innovation Auction. I think it's been very successful and they've done a great job. I think initially we didn't build a lot of connectivity between our core operations and what Innovation Auction is doing. And so I think that's been a little bit of a challenge for us. And we've continued to work on that even as of today, we work on that. I think being clear early on about what you really want to accomplish. Mm. I think Innovation Auctioner was really kind of a a skunk works group that were just trying to take problems that they thought they needed to solve. And frankly, that's really important. And and that group has been extremely innovative and done some amazing things. Probably we could have done a better job earlier on kind of guiding and saying, look, we'd like you to focus on these three areas or these five areas and provide a little bit more guidance. You know, I think today it's interesting if you think about innovation and digital connectivity it isn't comparing ourselves to other health systems. We have lots mm. of different organizations out there. I think it was something like $7 billion went into digital health in the first quarter of 2021. I think the challenge now is that there's lots of folks that are trying to fragment the experience. They just want Absolutely. to pick off one little component that they work with patients on. We're trying to integrate the experience and have yeah. a more consolidated, complete experience for patients. And that That's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over time and see what patients really want. Do they want this fragmented one-off experience that is really good in each area? Would they like a more integrated experience? And I think that's going to be the challenge that, you know, systems have to face and solve in the future. Are you worried that the pandemic has almost made that that tension between integration and fragmentation worse? I'm thinking specifically about how many Americans are getting their COVID vaccines at CVS pharmacies. And, you know, if it's a CVS health hub, they can get access to healthcare right there. And, and sure. it can kind of disrupt the the primary care process. Has that tension gotten worse since the onset of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that, but CVS has their own view of the ecosystem that they're creating. Yeah. And they want people to be in their ecosystem that they're putting together of health hubs, of 
pharmacies and you know what they provide from a preventative perspective and i'm sure building digital capabilities and home capabilities as well so i think really the situation that traditional health systems are in is that we're in a battle every single day for the relationship with our yeah. patients and you know our thesis here at auction is that the winners long term will be organizations that have a strong physical footprint that's very distributed, very ambulatory, very convenient to use, coupled with a very strong digital footprint with Mm -hmm. the digital capabilities and the digital connectivity for patients, and to be able to marry those and integrate those versus have them fragmented. If you look at a CVS, they've got a very large physical platform. They're building the digital platform. The question is, what other services will they put in their physical platform And will that be what wins the day for patients or will it be health systems and their large ambulatory platforms and do they build the right digital connectivity? Uh, I think those are questions that are really to be to be answered in the future. Or is it going to be a number of small startups that perform their one little function? Yeah, fragment the whole thing. Extremely well and fragment the whole thing. And you're going to have, you know, eight different apps for eight different things on your phone. And that that's the way to go because you want to best of breed. We've really viewed that integration and connectivity and trying to make that experience between physical and digital very seamless and very mm-hmm. easy to use uh, will win the day. But once again, I think the jury's out. Well, it's a good push to the health systems that are listening to this podcast because to be integrated, to act as a system, to get the benefits of scale and to do so with a mix of in-person and digital footprints, that's the only way you are going to compete in a landscape where the disruptors can't play, right? Exactly. They can't just overnight become an integrated delivery system. So right. rather than trying to win at their game, which is might be the best digital point solution, you've got to do something better. And that comes to exactly your point, integration. Exactly. I mean, for example, you know, we've got a large ambulatory platform, but, you know, last year, almost one in four appointments at Auctioner were booked online with no interaction from a human at Auctioner. Wait, when was this again? In 2020. In 2020. Before, was that right before the pandemic or in the middle of the pandemic? It was, it was through the whole year. Through the whole so year. Ne- so nearly one in four patients booked their appointments online themselves. Hmm. Now, it's one thing to have the technology. But it's another thing to have your schedules configured and your physicians bought in to have schedules open so patients can book appropriately. And a lot of work has gone into building the right algorithms to match the right patient and the right patient condition with the right physician. Mm -hmm. Because once again, if you've got back pain issue and you just see a general orthopedist that doesn't do any sort of, you know, issues with back pain or you go into neurosurgery and that person does not have the expertise in back surgery or wherever you enter the healthcare system, you don't want to get married up with the wrong provider. And so it's not just about technology. It's about the change management that goes behind the scenes to make sure your schedules are open, your Mm -hmm. providers and physicians accept that type of change. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. COVID-19 vaccine updates are coming at us fast and furious. Let us help you focus on the most important headlines 
make sense of them for your organization and patients, and maximize the success of your vaccine initiatives. Visit advisory.com COVID-19 for resources focused on your vaccine acceptance and administration and for other tools designed to support you in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. Let's think about the world of telehealth specifically. It can be the whole world of telehealth. So the synchronous virtual visit, the asynchronous visit, remote patient monitoring, et cetera. What I've found is that the workflow for the clinicians especially is key. Frankly, if I, if I can be blunt, I often tell leaders, if the workflow is bad, this digital solution is not going to be adopted no matter how good it is for patients. Is that something that you found as well? Yeah, I think we would agree with that. I mean, I think if it's if it's difficult to use for the physician, if it's not slick, if it doesn't integrate to the rest of their workflow and what they do, I think adoption is going to be very difficult. But the same is, is for the patient. I mean, if if, yeah. the, if it's difficult for the patient to use, they're not going to use it either. So then how do you make the workflow seamless? How do you make the digital path the easy path for let's start with physicians? I think it comes back to, obviously, with the pandemic, there was a lot of tremendously bad things about the pandemic, and it was a terrible thing, and it's a terrible thing we've all gone through. When it comes to virtual medicine, it was a very positive thing because the adoption got quick overnight, literally. You know, we did about 3,500 telemedicine, direct-to-consumer telemedicine visits in 2019. Hmm. And in 2020, we did 330,000. Wow almost a thousand percent increase. Okay. I should be clear that the numbers that you hit in 2019 are astronomical compared to average. I, I think I've said this before on this on this podcast that it wasn't uncommon for me to talk to organizations who would measure their virtual care volumes per month in the dozens in yeah. 2019. In the yeah. dozens. Right. And we pushed that hard. And that was half a year. We started that very robustly in July of 2019. We did a lot of direct connection to patients, whatnot, about 3,500. So then in 2020, fast forward, 300 and I think 26,000 or you know, almost 330,000. At one point, we were doing 15,000 virtual visits a week. Hmm. Um, so the adoption from patients, because they needed to see you know, their physicians and providers, the adoption from our physicians was was very well done. And the infrastructure and our ability to scale was you know, stood up very, very quickly. Um, so I think we worked through a lot of the workflows um, because people had the time uh, because a lot of our clinics were shut down, right? Yeah, absolutely. We couldn't bring folks into clinics. So they had time to basically figure out the best way to do this. We continued to perfect that process. And then today, obviously, those numbers are lower. We're not doing 15,000 a week. We're doing about 5,000 a week. Um, but I do think that providers have figured out how to work it into their day-to-day work. We offer um, virtual visits on certain types of visits. We ask the person, do you want to come in person? Would you like a virtual visit? Mm-hmm. So we're giving the patient the option when they book the appointment. And I think that flexibility, that option, a lot of patients like it. Uh, interestingly yeah. enough, you know, as our clinics opened up, we really worried that folks would not be coming back to the clinic. I was surprised right. how many people wanted to come back to our physical locations versus stay with a virtual visit. I thought it would be a lot higher, quite frankly. Hmm. 
This is the question that I think leaders are grappling with right now. It's interesting that even an organization with a two-decade history in the digital space and in innovation still had this kind of, I'm going to call it boom and bust, even if things didn't go back to to, to pre-pandemic numbers, you still saw this dramatic increase in virtual visits that happened as a result of, of the early stay-at-home orders, right? New Orleans was an early hotspot. Makes sense for, for, for your organization specifically. But as numbers have come back down, frankly, as, as the desire among patients and physicians to resume quote-unquote normalcy has, has gotten bigger, there's this question of how much or what kinds of digital services need to remain virtual in the future? How do you answer that question? I think it's an evolution. I don't think anybody today has the answer on that. Not even and you. I think, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody does. Anybody that says they know, actually, I, I think they're probably mistaken. So yeah. I, I'm not sure where that ends up. And, and frankly, it's going to be a very individual thing. You know, there's somebody that take 10 people. You give them the same visit, I think you, you could get a very different answer. Uh, and, and, and I don't think it's based on age. I think it's really based no. on the individual and how they think about it and how they want to get health care. So obviously we do see, you know, probably better adoption in younger populations. But I would say it's a mix across, you know, generations. Um, so I don't know exactly how that plays out. I do know that we have to have the flexibility to do both really mm-hmm. well. I do know that we have to have that experience, be able to integrate and keep our information in one place. And I do know that we need to provide the option and not argue with our patients and say, well, you have to do that virtually or, oh, you have to do that in Hmm. person. I mean, obviously there's some things you got to do in person because of, you know, how you take care of the patient. But I I think providing options and flexibility is going to be important in, in how we meet the needs of our patients in the future. I wonder, as somebody who spent so much time in this space, if there are any myths or misconceptions out there that you just want to bust. You mentioned already the idea that that older folks don't want to use digital solutions. Are there other myths out there that you just want to want to bust for our listeners? I think the idea of providing digital tools and just thinking people are going to use them uh, is just not the case. I mean, just the uh, fact that uh-huh. you offer something does not mean you're going to get you know major adoption of of that, and you have to continue to make it available, uh, help people understand the things they can do online. You know, as I said, we booked almost you know one in four appointments online. Did about almost you know two million visits, essentially messages with our patients and our physicians and providers last year. We answered about ninety six, ninety seven percent of those messages same day which wow. is what people expect. But once again, I, you, you can't force people and say, well, you have to message us or you must come in. It's, you got to provide each of these options to folks and, and it's going to be up to the person to decide what works best for them. I think the challenge is that flexibility, that workflow is different by physician as well because they could have patients that want to approach care in very different ways. So I think that makes practicing medicine today a lot harder for Mm -hmm. a lot of physicians. And I think we need to keep working every day to make it as easy for folks as possible, given the flexibility that we're trying to provide to our patients. Yeah, I could not agree more. What's next 
for Oxner when it comes to innovation and virtual care specifically. Cast maybe forward five years, where do you want to see Oxner and what's the path to getting there? It depends on the exact area. I think in virtual, how we do remote monitoring in the home, hmm. how we own those um, connections in the home is is really important. Organizations like Bowie that have done essentially, you know, kind of symptom types of programs that you can, you know, kind of self-diagnose with AI, I think is a really important component that once again, it's a great service. It's got to be integrated to the rest of what you do. It's yeah. great if you help somebody kind of decide what's wrong with them. And then the question, and then what, you know, and yeah. then where do they go? Do they go to urgent care? Do they need to go to the ER? Is it just a primary care visit? Do they need to see a specialist? So I think those solutions standalone, if they're not integrated, are, are less helpful. But I think home and remote monitoring is a big, big focus for us going forward. I think how we use the digitized data that we have to predict. Mm-hmm. The way I like to describe this is we needed to move from reactive where people call us or they show up at the ER, they go to our office to being proactive where we reach out. We tell people about you know the fact that they haven't had their preventative care done. We tell people that they need you know, certain screenings done. And then we move to predictive. We predict, Hmm. you know, that based upon the types of conditions you have, we would predict that you would be hypertensive in the future. We would predict that you would have diabetes in the future. We would predict that you will be readmitted to our hospital so that we can intervene quicker and earlier and help people be more proactive in taking care of themselves. So that reactive to proactive to predictive is the way that we like to think about how we're approaching our solutions for patients. There's something that you did not say. And frankly, I'm not surprised that you didn't say it, but I want to point it out for our listeners. When you thought about the future of of the digital space, you did not say video visits. You did not say a synchronous video-based appointment like the Zoom calls that we all have every day. And I think that's important because I I certainly don't think that's where the future is. Frankly, I think that's a little bit more of the past than people are willing to admit for themselves. And if I think about where folks are investing right now, my push would be towards more of that store and forward messaging, towards more of that remote patient monitoring, towards what you said about using data even now, because that is really where we need to go in the future. Video visits, virtual visits, whatever nomenclature you use, I think is a piece of this solution. I think the question is really around how do you win at patient engagement? Hmm. You know, historically, we've thought about patient satisfaction and whatnot as, hey, what's your experience when you're in our ER, when you're in our hospital, when you're in our our clinics? To me, that's when the folks are in your four walls. That is not where we are today. I mean, the question is, right. how do you engage patients when they're not within your four walls? How do you know that you're, yeah. how do you let them know that you're thinking about them when they're not in your clinics? What is the way you're going to engage them to take better care of themselves? And how can you do it in a way that's not intrusive, but is more coming alongside them and being a partner? You know, so I'll use an example, our digital medicine program for hypertension. People that have, you know, hypertension, it's out of control. In the control group, about one out of five people get their hypertension under control. These are people that start out of control, have high blood pressure. You know, in our digital medicine program, where we essentially send folks home with digital blood pressure cuff, it syncs to their 
smartphone, which connects to our Epic platform. Mm -hmm. And we have pharmacists and health coaches that are constantly reaching out to people. We have technology that's sending messages to folks to engage them to take their blood pressure and to remind them to take their medicine. If we see their blood pressure creeping up, we'll be in contact with them and intervene. We see four out of five people, 80% of people keeping their blood pressure under control with our digital medicine program versus a control group of 20%. That's coming alongside someone and helping them manage their own condition in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And the historic way is we'd bring somebody in once a quarter to be seen. With our digital hypertension program, people are taking their blood pressure four to five times a week versus four times a year. Very different. Yeah. And this is so important because it speaks to the fact that data is out there. Patients are generating more data than ever before. It is a question of how do you capture it and how do you use it? If I think about how many people have their own blood pressure cuffs at home, now they might not be digital blood pressure cuffs, but you can buy one on Amazon. You can buy one at you know your local grocery store. Let's instead get that in the hands of patients so that we can actually use that data and intervene. That's incredible. I think that's a big difference, right? I mean, it's one thing to take your blood pressure four or five times a week on your own. It's another thing that your healthcare provider is looking at it. They're calling you up. They're titrating your medicine differently. Um, They're Mm -hmm. talking to you and coaching you about diet, uh, about activity, and and about taking your medicine. I mean, one of the things we've seen in our our digital medicine program is pharmacy costs go up. Pharmacy costs Mm. go up because people are taking their medicine versus the control group. ER visits, hospitalizations, total total medical costs go down. So I think it's a... Intuitively, it it makes a lot of sense, right? But it is a very different model of how you try to take care of someone. I get a little nervous that some folks might be listening to this and thinking, wow, they are so far ahead of where I am in my own digital transformation journey. Do you have some key lessons learned or a message you want to share with the organizations and programs that are really at the beginning of their journey here? First of all, is no one has to recreate the wheel here, right? You can learn from other organizations, you know, like us or like others out there. I mean, we learn from other organizations every single week about what other people Mm -hmm. are doing. So nobody needs, uh, nobody has the the answer here. And we need to all be fast learners from other organizations that maybe are a little bit ahead of of each other in different areas. So we constantly are learning. I think the other thing is you got to start. I mean, you've got to be willing to commit that, hey, I have to have a digital strategy. I have to figure out how I connect with our patients differently. And look, if you're a smaller organization, then maybe you should be partnered with an organization that's larger that may be able to help you with some of these tools. One of the things we've done at Oxford is we've got great partnerships with organizations like St. Tammany Parish Health System, Slidell Memorial Hospital are two examples that we provide our IT platform to them and IT services to them. And we're able to bring some of these tools with that capability. So you can do these things in partnership. You don't have to create it all yourself, but you do have to commit to a new way to think about the world and a new way to think about taking care of people. And and we also have to understand that nothing against my colleagues at CVS or Amazon (laughs) or, you know, startup ABCD out in Silicon Valley, they are all trying to get that patient relationship from us. And if we don't stay proactive 
and keep bringing different yep. solutions, we will lose in that battle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Warner, I feel like I could spend hours talking to you about this, but I, I won't I won't subject you to that, at least not without cocktails. So I do have one final question for you, and it's the one that I ask on every episode. When it comes to innovation, when it comes to the digital space, what's the one thing you want our listeners to take away or act on right now? I think when it comes to digital is, as I said before, you have to start. You have to commit to want to do this. You have to commit to want to do some things differently. And you have to understand that this is where the world is going. All you have to do is look at anything else you do in your life. Banking, how much you've bought online in the past year you know, when you were at your oh, home yeah. and you're stuck in your basement and you know you need to have stuff. <laughs> I mean, you're buying it all online, right? Well, that's how people want to access healthcare. And maybe not all of the delivery of services, but they want to be able to get this information and get to you in a digital fashion. And if they can't, they're going to find a way to do it, either with your competitor or with another organization that's more national. And and I think that is the important thing of for organizations. You gotta start, you gotta commit to this, and you gotta keep learning every single day. Thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks, Ray. Great to be with you. We'll be right back with what our research team is watching this week. It's been a while since we've talked about volumes, so I wanted to bring back one of our experts, Colin Gelbaugh, to reflect on the first quarter of volumes and do some more predicting of what's to come. Welcome back, Colin. Thank you. Remind us, what were we actually predicting when it comes to volumes at the start of the year? Well, back in January, we modeled three different scenarios, optimistic, pessimistic, and most likely scenarios that largely had to account for the different trajectories that COVID might take throughout the first half of the year. In the most likely scenario for April, we had inpatient admissions at 93% compared to pre-pandemic baseline, inpatient surgeries at 95%, outpatient surgeries at uh, about 100% and outpatient visits at 98%. That's what we had predicted initially for the first three months of the year. Now that that's actually happened, how does that compare to current state? Overall, we're pretty close to what we had projected for most visit types. There are some exceptions. Inpatient admissions are down more than expected. And as we look back at our projections for February and March, there was a sharper recovery than expected in those months due to the quicker drop-off in COVID-19 cases that we expected. Hmm. So then what's the deal with inpatient admissions? I think a big factor here is that ED visits continue to be suppressed by anywhere from 15 to 25%. That's a big reason that inpatient admissions are down as well. But it looks like on the whole the volume outlook has actually improved since we last spoke. I'm going to say that with a grain of salt, given the caveat you just gave around ED volumes and inpatient visits. But does this mean that providers are largely out of the woods? I think there's still some significant headwinds that they are going to have to face in the next few months. 
The first being sustained care avoidance. We expect patients will continue to avoid healthcare settings for both safety and financial reasons for the next few months. Hence, ED visits being down. Correct. Part of the reason that ED visits are down. Second big factor here is that we'll continue to see some case and payer mix shifts. Providers are already seeing complex patients. Hmm. So even if they're getting volumes, they might not necessarily be the most profitable volumes. Or they might be harder to treat or later stage diagnoses. Hmm. The third thing factor here is site of care shifts. We're seeing greater preference for non-hospital settings of care, including telehealth and ambulatory surgical centers, which will lead to some degree of market share shifts. And also challenges in capturing some of the ancillary and downstream volume with the shifts away from in-person care. And then the final factor has to do with societal changes. So, for example, changes to travel patterns and work locations, changing where people receive care, and also mask usage and less social interactions, decreasing transmissibility of of other non-COVID illnesses. And those are big questions about the future. So with that in mind, I want you to peer into your crystal ball for me. What are you predicting is going to happen in the next three months when it comes to volumes? Overall, in the next few months, we expect volumes to remain slightly below but close to baseline. It might not be, in fact, till the end of the year into the next year where we reach pre-pandemic baselines and recover the cumulative losses from the care avoidance that's happened over the past year. There are also a number of variables at play. Look at Michigan, who has recently hit their all-time high in in new daily COVID cases. Um, So we'll be watching that closely and and the vaccine rollout as well. There are clearly so many open questions about what the future of volumes are going to look like, when we will recover completely, where that recovery will actually happen, and what it all means for site-of-care shifts and, yes, digital care as well. So remember, as always, we're here to help. And so is Colin. Yes, I am. Now I feel like I'm saying it wrong, and I've been saying it wrong the whole time. Oxner? Oshner? Oxner. <laughs>